0: Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini.
1: Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Very excited for this particular episode. Today, I'm going to introduce you to my financial brain trust. There's no such thing as a self-made millionaire. Anybody who becomes successful, becomes successful because of the influences they have and the people who help them along the way, coach them, mentor them. And uh, I'm going to introduce you to three people who help me on a regular basis with regards to turning my finances into a fortune. And if you like the idea of having a fortune, I got three lads that are going to help you here today. First, I have Mr. Joe Nego. Now, you've heard Joe in prior podcasts But Joe is a whiz at long-term real estate investing, and he is a uh, significant landowner there in the city of Chicago. He owns a bunch of units, a bunch of apartment buildings, and he's got great insights for us today. Joe, glad to have you on the podcast.
0: Great to be here, Brian.
1: Also, I have uh, Ben Stewart. Now, Ben Stewart and I go back a long ways, all 22 years, I believe. And Ben's specialty is he's the president of Stewart Wealth Management. He's a a wealth management guy who takes the world of stocks and bonds and investing and kind of cuts through the clutter for me, makes it real simple. And we've done real well together. And so I wanted to bring him to you today. He's helped me. I thought Ben could help you. So, Ben, top of the morning to you. Glad to have you
2: awesome to be here. Thanks, Brian.
1: And then I have uh, Jamie Hopkins. Jamie Hopkins, a San Diego boy. Jamie and I sold real estate together, and Jamie has been my realtor for the past 25 years. Not just a trusted advisor in that regard, but Jamie's also carved out a nice niche lately in helping people diversify their real estate investments with vacation rentals. And vacation rentals is a real hot topic. It's all over the news. There's all kinds of issues and Tax codes and all kinds of city government involved. And we're going to talk through that minefield today, but also a great way to diversify your portfolio. So, Jamie, glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So, we're going to have a good time. We're going to talk about real estate. We're going to talk about stocks. We're going to talk about investing. And we're going to talk about how to turn finances into a fortune. Now, I've covered some of these things in the past. Obviously, the way to get ahead in life is to work. Right, that's kind of the first one, right? Have a business, have a job. So, work. Here's the second thing this is real profound stuff spend less than you make. We recently recorded a podcast with David Bach telling people how to get ahead. You know, as simple as that sounds, 80% of people listen to this podcast, 80% of the people you know spend more than they make. And so, it's common to spend more than you make, it's common to be broke, it's common to not have much of a net worth. 49% of the United States, the richest country in the world, 49% of people have less than $500 in savings, guys. It's crazy. So we want to help that. We want to help people get out of the ruts. All of us, none of us here today were born with silver spoons in our mouth. All of us have started from the grassroots. All of us have built fortunes Nose to the grindstone. And all of us are still working, okay? And so I want to bring that to folks today. So we want to, you need to work. You need to earn. You need to spend less than you make. You need to save the difference and then you invest. And people often don't know what to put their money into. You know, the world of investing is so convoluted you know the all the the trading ads and the you know do this and you know six dollar trades ben that's what i need to be doing or buy fix and sell real estate jamie there's an infomercial rolling into town what should i do buy real estate with nothing down there's dozens of shows on tv about flipping real estate buying fixing and flipping man everybody's flipping real estate seems like a great thing to do until you see most of those properties still (laughs) on the market right so Here's the bottom line. We want to cover the basics and the fundamentals. And then we kind of want to get into some advanced stuff here today. And before I get into some questions, I want to know from you guys, from your perspective, who's done something well and who hasn't done. But Joe, let me start with you in this regard. Tell me this. What's kind of your philosophy on investing and getting ahead in life?
0: Well, first of all, it's to do it. You know, everything you've talked about is about, you know, working and saving and spending less than you make. And then you have this money that's left over and it's a wise thing to invest. I learned as a young kid. I remember when back in the mid seventies, when I first opened a bank account and I would accumulate my Christmas money and confirmation money and communion money and I'd bring it to the bank and my parents had set us up with a savings account. And it was a time when interest rates were sky high. And I went to the bank to make a deposit and the teller said, did you know you accumulated interest? And I said, what's that? (laughs) And what does that mean? And she went on to tell me that we take your money and we put it out there and she held up the little passbook and she said, this is your investment. And she says, you can thank the high interest rates for such a great return. And I had a 12% return on a passbook account back in those days. Mm. And uh, I remember having a hundred bucks in there and then seeing a hundred and twelve dollars and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to invest in passbooks, you know, when I get older. <laughs> and later found out interest rates came down, everything adjusted. Sure. But it's the whole idea it was the discovery of, money making money for you. Right. And I, I felt like that was uh, something that was, you know, when someone's thinking about securing a financial future, that's it was definitely a route I wanted to take.
1: Well, you know, it's funny for myself, I've always used this analogy when I've taught audiences that when I get up in the morning, I shave, I do this little game with myself and I pretend there's four Bryans shaving their face. And I'm shaving my face and my face is the Brian that's going to work that day. And I'm going to work and do my job and and run my company and and do what I'm doing and and that guy's going to work but then there's another Brian on my left and he's shaving and that guy well that guy's my real estate Brian and he owns all these real estate assets and I'm hoping he has a good day at work and then I have my stock and retirement account Brian and he's shaving his face and he's going all the different assets that I have are going to work that day Mm. and I might not have had a good day at work Buffini Company might have had a bad day But my real estate Brian might have had a good day, or my stock Brian might have had a good day. Some days my stock Brian has a bad day, but my Buffini and company Brian has a great day. And I just, I love that analogy that it's not all on me. I put my money to work, and the money goes to work for me. And it's kind of like, it doesn't make life feel so overwhelming or difficult. It's like, hey, your money's going to work for you. And it's like, hey. and at the end of the day, I'm hoping everybody has a clean shave. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh,
0: no doubt. We have an expression on the south side of Chicago. It's, uh, and I learned this as a kid. That you know how money has the picture of presidents from the past? Sure. So they would have Lincoln and grant, and, and there was an expression on the south side of Chicago, as was a blue-collar community, we would work extremely hard to make money. We had electricians and plumbers, and, and there was an expression among those men that always said, you got to get the dead presidents working for you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's you got to get your money working for you, right. and I'll never forget that. Yeah,
1: that's great. So Ben Stewart, we're going to talk a little bit about you. You know, you've been at this game now for a long time your parents came from the real estate background. You've always been interested in numbers. Your dad said from day one, you're more fired up about actuarial tables than other things. you know. So talk a little bit about that. What's your investment philosophy if you're talking to someone for the first
2: time? Well, I think to be successful, you have to start with a mindset. So I've been doing this now for 18 years and I have yet to meet a rich pessimist. So you have to be Ooh. optimistic really that the stock market and real estate market over time will be higher than it is five and ten years from now. Mm. People need to understand that bumps and setbacks are part of the growth process to getting wealthy. I think people that do really well recover well, Mm. and people that don't seem to bail at times that they shouldn't be.
1: So right when things get sticky, they get nervous, they get scared, they pull out.
2: There's actually a company named Dalbar that's done some studies and they've been tracking inflows and outflows of stock mutual funds. And it tends to be a persistent trend that there's selling going on when the market or the S and P 500 is pulling back between five and 15%. Mm -hmm. There's more selling than buying. And over time, I think the studies have shown that people capture about half the upside of the markets. Mm because they have decisions based out of fear.
1: Yep. In and out. Doesn't work. As we get into it, Mr. Hopkins, your philosophy, you you help a lot of clients. You you have a pretty prodigious real estate practice, and you have a lot of clients like me who come back to you year after year. We've done a lot of deals together. Yes, we have. More to come, Lord willing. What's your philosophy when it comes to making money in real estate?
3: Uh, Invest in what you know Mm. and think long term. Mm. I grew up with nothing, poor mm-hmm. Central California town and my great aunt, she was a secretary for an yeah. attorney, never married, no children. So her and my great grandma lived on the same block. And I didn't know this till later, but when I was a young boy, you know, eight, nine, ten, I mowed the lawns of all my great aunt's property. She owned every house on a block all the way around Jeez. it, except for one, on a secretary's salary. But she squandered her money away, and she bought all that real estate. So it was great as a kid because I could go from one lawn to the next, and you know, I had some <laughs> cash in my pocket. Did you know
1: they were her properties?
3: Not at first. Yeah. You know, she passed away. I think I was twelve or thirteen, and then I learned that she owned all of that. I wow. thought she was kind of the mastermind of the block, set it all up for me, <laughs> did me a favor with all of her neighbors because I didn't know the tenants were not tenants and not the owners. Jeez. Correct and. She had all the money from her rentals stuffed in the carpet on the, going up the stairs, you know, that <laughs> runner. Cash. Like, it's, I think it was over $100,000. Well, how I'm, long was this? 40 years ago. Jeez. 40 years ago. I'm like, wow. I remember even being at that age, what an impression that it made on me to be able to own all of that, yeah. you know? And she was a very soft-spoken woman, but, I mean, that's what she accomplished. Heck, I thought yeah. it was great.
1: You know, and it's interesting to me, you know, as much as, you know, the John Wayne world of investing and whatever else, my three biggest influences in getting into real estate were women mm -hmm. who had sucked away money. Yeah. And one was uh, Polly Smith. Her husband was a big catfish Smith, and he was a Hall of Fame football player, and he was a colonel in the military. And he would invest in gold mines and goofy stuff, and she would just rat hole cash away. And she owned property, like oceanfront property in La Jolla Shores. Wow. Oceanfront property in Hawaii. She rat-holed cash and rat hole cash and every time I talked to her, she go, Brian, you gotta do that. And then my first landlady, Eva Springstead, over in Pacific Beach, and she was, again, she had been a secretary in the doctor's office. Yeah. And she owned dozens of buildings in Pacific Beach in California, which today are worth tens of millions of dollars. And that's
3: pretty common. You find that there's yeah. Strong women that are good savers. Yeah. You know, statistically, that's yeah. the reality of it. Right. And they hold
1: the real estate long term and away they go. Yeah.
3: yeah. So long term. You know, my father was in real estate, but besides a house we owned before my parents divorced, he's never owned real estate. Yeah. You know, and so it wasn't a great example, yeah. but I lean into what my great aunt Audrey did. And, uh, you know, back when I, I think I bought my first fourplex the second year I was in real estate in El Cajon. Yeah. You know, and then I just I would keep buying something else, and I still have those properties, so it's been good. I parlayed a few of them, but uh, long term.
1: Yep, yeah, that's great. We'll talk a little yeah. bit about that, Mr. Nego. You love real estate. Oh, I do. Never met a piece of real estate. Oh, like. I do.
0: <laughs> talk, Let's
1: go looking for some property. Yeah, talk to these folks a little bit. How How does a guy from the South Side of Chicago, grew up with eight kids in a very small home? Uh, his dad was a mason and also had a a janitorial job for the city. How does that guy become uh, a real estate mogul today? Where'd you start, what you do, and then tell me a little bit about uh, what's worked well for you in owning real estate long-term.
0: Well, let me tell you how I started. Uh, You know, Jamie had mentioned that his dad maybe wasn't the greatest example when it came to buying real estate. He looked to his aunt, and, uh, you know, being one of eight children growing up on the south side of Chicago, my dad had owned some real estate, and he had owned it before he got married and before he had all these kids. And owning investment real estate could be a handful. And he found that having eight kids in 10 years was quite the handful. So she <laughs> sold off all of his real estate. Mm. And he had owned a two flat here, a three flat there, owned a four flat, but sold it all off. But as the family began to grow, he would always say, when you boys get old enough, we're going to buy one property a year, mm. and we're going to buy one property a year. And you're going to go cut the grass and shovel the snow and collect the rent, and, uh, and then we'll buy another one. And that was kind of his plan for his kids, mm. and I'll never forget that. And then tragically, when I was 24 years old, had gotten drafted by the Houston Rockets, I had a lot going on in my life, I got a phone call one day from my brother to let me know that my father was on his way to the hospital. And upon arriving, we find out he... My dad had a massive heart attack and passed away. Mm. That was back in 1987. And obviously, it was a traumatic for all of us. You know, I uh, still think of him today. And, but his legacy has been so many ways for me. And uh, so it was six months after he had passed. I had graduated from school. I had gotten released from the Rockets, trying to find my way. I had a number of basketball opportunities. There were coaching opportunities, all this other stuff. And I turned to my sister, Terry. And I go, what are we going to do? Because at that time, I was caught between a boy and a man Mm -hmm. and really didn't have much guidance. So I said, Dad always talked about buying real estate. Let's go buy real estate. Mm -hmm. And she goes, well, what are you going to buy and what are you going to do? And don't you need a job in order to... (laughs) And don't you need money to do that stuff? Well, if there's a will, there's a way. Right. And we just made the commitment. I wound up purchasing a two-unit apartment building with a garden apartment in the basement with a big, massive garage that we were able to rent out. It was almost like a Mr. Magoo purchase. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just something I was committed to doing. And lo and behold, it was the best investment I ever made. Every (laughs) other investment after that has not been as good but uh it's just I kind of jump in and so that was my history yeah. in, in getting into it and it was a great investment wound to parlaying that into other opportunities but if I had to give people advice when it comes to owning real estate i think this is something i've discovered over the years is that investment property or investment real estate is really a business that's disguised itself as an investment. But sure. right. there's work connected uh, Yeah, no doubt about it. There's collecting. You're managing people, and um, they say owning real estate would be a whole lot better if you didn't have to deal with people. Mm-hmm. But people are the ones that pay the rent, and it's a service you provide, and there's a whole bunch of benefits for owning real
1: estate. So, so what you're telling me is you don't get to sit in a hammock and just let it all grow, and they no. send you checks, and life is good.
0: No, it's, it's a working man's path to wealth. And in your book, The Immigrant Edge, which I highly recommend, you see a high percentage of people making their way to America and wanting a piece of the American dream. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's a piece of owning a home that they'd be able to raise their family in. But for so many immigrants that come to America, it is owning real estate. Mm -hmm. And I had heard one time, 75% of the wealthiest people in America made their wealth through real estate. Now, Mm -hmm. it may have changed a little bit with the technology boom and all, but coming from where I come from, there's a lot of immigrants on the south side of Chicago, people that have come from Mexico and Ireland and Germany and Poland, and many that come from informal educated environments that come to America and come to Chicago and buy investment real estate. And let's just say this, they're not living paycheck to paycheck.
1: Yeah, right. So you started out, you bought a house, bought an apartment building, you bought more apartment buildings. What was kind of the mix as you grew through the ranks on that? What did you find you liked and why?
0: You know, I, I always found it. I, I liked the residential apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't start off buying a 12-unit building. I started off small yeah. and worked my way up from there. I, I've kind of looked at commercial opportunities. I've looked at industrial opportunities. But I like the residential apartment buildings because it was what I knew. Sure. After I purchased my first building, I go, I, I kinda like this real estate business. And mm. you know, that very first building cash flow, believe it or not, it was actually it was uh, cash flow over seven hundred and fifty dollars a month. Positive cash flow, which mm. is again not because I was brilliant, is because I was more like Mr. Magoo. <laughs> I was fortunate. Yeah. And I go, Wow, you can make money while you sleep and I had an equity buildup, and then there was appreciation, and then the tax guy told me, well, you have depreciation you can write off, and, and then the cash flow itself, and I was like, this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then you know what I said? I'm going to get more committed to this. I'm all in. I got my real estate license because mm-hmm. I wanted the inside scoop, mm-hmm. and then I wanted to buy another piece of real estate, and I started to buy where I sold real estate. So it was the perfect fit.
1: And you were on that mode of buying at least a property a year? Yes. Picking one up? During the course of that year, you'd, you'd save, you'd rat hole some cash, yes. you go buy a property, and then after you buy a property, you have to recover from that, Yes. and it, you have to build up your reserves again, start rat holeing some more, rat holeing some more, bought smaller properties, and then you found out along the way, okay, I've got a lot of these single family residences, I've got this, I've got that. Now that this is becoming more mature, this is going well, now you sold some of those properties. Yes. Used a tax-deferred structure, then to move up into bigger properties.
0: Correct, correct. That was the strategy I used, and it's worked out well.
1: And now you own many, many, many buildings with tons of units right there in Chicago. It is another business, right? Today, you've built it up to the point that you have someone who kind of manages that for you. Yeah. You're still engaged. You're still given oversight. But, you know, you build it up to the point that you go from, you know, we've all been there. Well, you know, it was the toilet breaks you're the call mm-hmm. or you got to call the plumber you know something happens the fence falls down you know depending on your financial situation you're either trying to put a fence up or you're calling the guy who's the handyman that you Yeah. you know if you own apartment buildings or you own a, a rental properties you're going to know handyman and plumbers and electricians and or you're going to learn how to do some of yeah, that
0: yeah you're going to do you're going to cut the grass shovel the snow
1: right so you use that and you did that and I did the same thing only as my Boffenian company business grew I got out of residential ownership because I didn't have time. So I had a bunch of single family residences. I had apartments. I've had all these different things. And so for me, because I didn't want a business, I built up my equities and I buy commercial buildings. Mm, And so commercial buildings work for me for three reasons. One, I have, it's a triple net lease, as it's called. And a triple net lease, as you know, is they pay the lease. They also pay the taxes, the maintenance, and the upkeep on the property. So I just get a check anything goes wrong with the property, they got to go figure it out. So obviously, the upside for me is owning commercial real estate. I don't have the time. And again, I had to fix the toilets and do all that. And I've, I've been around the real estate business now for 30 years. So I did those things. I've tried all kinds of stuff. I had storage units. I owned a ton of those. I, I was in a hotel at one stage. I mean, I've tried all kinds of stuff. Lots of scars. Some worked <laughs> out better than others, right? <laughs> but commercial real estate's worked out well for me. The one downside, I'd say, to commercial real estate, I've done well. Buffini & Company rents all its buildings from me, for example. Mm. So I've done real well with that. The downside to commercial real estate is you've got to be strong enough to hold a vacancy. Yes, and so you own a 40,000-square-foot commercial building and you only have two tenants and the market changes and this and any other, and one of those tenants leave and you got a 30,000-square-foot vacancy. you got to be strong enough to hold that building, not need that income for a year while it takes you a while to go fill it. And so typically you got to kind of build to that place. That's not where I would encourage somebody to start, but it's a good place to look at when things are really going good. And if it's, you get to the point where you go, man, I don't want to have the business of managing real estate I just want to have the income, so (laughs) that's one of the ways. Let let me ask you this, Joe. What's worked well for you, and also what have you seen people not do well when it comes to long-term real estate hauls?
0: One thing I feel like I've done well is I've held... Mm. I've held. I don't get queasy with the market. Mm. I mean, we went through the mortgage meltdown and it was hard on everybody. And I was uh, financially strong enough to hold, but I had a number of people saying, you need to get out. It's going to get worse. Mm. And uh, I'm just committed to real estate. So I held.
1: You're a very sophisticated real estate investor. You teach on real estate and you had buildings that you had purchased that were good investments that all of a sudden were worth less than you paid. For. Yes, no doubt. But you got to go, I believe in the future. Ben talked about there's no rich pessimists. So you had to hold. Things are going to get better. Things are going to improve. And that's been the case right? Those buildings have come back in values and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah. And I feel like I'm a good landlord. I mean, just from owning real estate, everything's systemized Yeah, because I'm smart enough to know that it's not a pure investment. It's actually another business. So in the other business, there's financials, there's job descriptions, there's a standard that we want to hold our buildings to. There's also a standard to the quality of the tenant that we'll bring in. Now we like to... Bring in tenants that have jobs and have good (laughs) credit and value being there, and we'll take good care of them. Right.
1: Where have you seen people mess it up?
0: You know, I see people get seduced by real estate mm. and feel like it's just somewhere that they can park their money and they're going to go sit on a beach somewhere and drink Coronas mm-hmm. and tell everyone they own real estate. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way.
1: Or, or they get seduced by it's only ever going up.
0: Yeah, you know, someone gets fired up and they go to a seminar and they do the no money down and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. It's just, you know, there's no easy way to make money. The only ones that making money and the no money down strategies and all that other stuff is the guy who's selling the package. Mm -hmm. You know, you stick to the fundamentals. You get rich. Here's the bottom line. If you're willing to do the dirty work, you can get filthy
1: rich. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I love that, and I love what you said. Real estate is a uh, working man's way to riches, and I think that's been true for all of us here sitting at the table. Ben, you have an opportunity to help people with their investments where it's not necessarily another job, right? You're in an environment where people have their money go make more money by being in the market. That's right. When have you seen people and how have you seen people do well by putting their money in the market?
2: Well, there's a lot of ways to go with this one. I would say for our stuff that we did early on, we did a lot of individual stocks and our strategy was dividend investing. I think a lot of people go that way because dividends are taxed Qualified dividends are taxed at 15%, no matter what tax bracket you're in. Mm-hmm. And we did really well with that strategy. And, and then, for somebody who doesn't know, and they're a basic rookie, explain what a dividend is. So a dividend is a large company paying some of their profits to their shareholders. Right. And normally they're cut quarterly. Yeah. So instead of like Joe's passbook,
1: you get the 12%, you own a dividend stock, you get the 12% given to you, or the 8%, or the 7%, whatever it is. And uh, you can let it ride, or you can—that's correct. Yep.
2: And that was the first prong of our strategy, and we've been refining that recently. So, I would say, the last decade, really, there's been a rise in something called an exchange traded fund. Yes. And
1: ETFs, they're often called ETFs.
2: And essentially, an ETF is a basket of stocks or bonds that you purchase on the open market, and it tracks an index. And just to expand on that, an index is a generic term that describes a basket of securities that are selected and weighted according to a set of rules. So the rules that we're kind of looking at right now is companies that are raising their dividends. We're looking at those type of companies that have not cut their dividends in the last 10 years. For an example, we own the Schwab Dividend Index. We call it the Built to Last Index. Yep. And some of the top holdings are Johnson & Johnson and Procter & Gamble. Chevron's in there. So it's companies that have been around for a long time. They're constantly raising their dividends We also have an index where we're focused on the highest dividends. So those are paying north of three and a half so we can get a stream of income. Both strategies have been working well, but the rise of the index fund has become very popular because they have very low costs and tax advantages. So we can have an index fund held for the long run. It's going to rebalance certain percentages of stocks for us without any tax implications. Right. So what's happened is we can have a mutual fund where they're buying and selling, trading, and rebalancing. And I think it's now 90% of mutual funds pay a capital gains tax, and they're extremely tax inefficient. Whereas the ETFs and the index funds, it's only about 5% pay a capital gain. So what we're looking to accomplish is have a stream of income, have low tax, and have low tax consequences annually.
1: Let's talk about, you helped me, right? So we have our strategy. (laughs) We've been working together for a long time. So no matter what, I send up to San Francisco every quarter a pretty good-sized chunk of change these days. Dollar-cost averaging. Right, and so it accumulates in your Schwab account, and it accumulates as cash, and then we have a strategy built out around these index funds and so Absolutely. on and so forth. And so when the
2: market's in a good spot, we buy and then we hold, right? Right. So what we've been doing is something called limit orders. And if you go back historically, there's a pretty good chance that we're going to have a 10% correction every year. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen like clockwork. So what we're into doing is after you deposit your quarterly check, we're looking to buy a broad-based index, when there's a three to five percent correction, so we know over the long run, the S and P's average about nine point seven percent. And if we can buy that on a pullback of three percent, we feel like we're in a pretty good spot to make money over the long run. Right. So let's just stop there for a second. Sure. Nine point seven
1: percent has been the historical average for the S and P. That's a great rate of return. That's correct. Yeah. It's really a great rate of return. I mean, that's. I taught a class here recently. I was showing Warren Buffett, and a share of. Berkshire Hathaway in 1965 was 19 bucks. He's averaged 19% return. That single share is worth 172 grand today. Well, I don't think I'm ever going to be in Warren Buffett's class, but I can put money in the S&P and get 9.7. That's pretty doggone good.
2: You we know? can still buy Berkshire
1: Hathaway too, but he's getting up there, so <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we could yeah.
2: count on him for being around too many more yeah.
1: years. Right. But you know that's a great deal. So we have it. We have these limit orders in place. We have the cash just sitting there. Sure. The cash accumulates. Now, it's important. We're not trying to time the market. And we believe in dollar cost averaging, which is buying over time. But we buy on the pullbacks. Market changes all the time with the technology that exists today. Three to five percent pullback. Boom. It's set up automatically. So when something happens in the world, I always know this. Something goes on. Kim Jong-un has a bad day. Things start going nuts. Some crazy nuts stuff happens with you know, some oil spill or something happens in the world and people get crazy. You know, Buffett says the stock market is a vehicle for taking money from impatient people and giving it to patient people, right? So I'm in this spot. When I see these news things and it's, it's accumulating, the market starts having a meltdown, I always know sometime in the next 24 hours I'm getting a text from Ben. And Ben's going to go, We got so and so today. And I'm not trying to buy at the lowest all the time, but we just have built in over time a little pullback. We're in, and then we hold, and then we hold. We don't lose money on stocks because we never sell. People are, oh, I lost money, right? It's the same in real estate. You've never lost money in real estate, Joe. No. But it doesn't mean the property values didn't go down. Right. You can't lose money if you don't sell. So real estate's that way. Investments are that way. Stocks are that way. It's all that way. You know, I think that's a helpful little tip for people. I like to be transparent with folks. You know, and again, I'm not Warren Buffett, But we've done pretty good, Ben, and my family thanks you. (laughs) When
2: have you seen people just mess it up and and really screw up? When I see people struggling, it's usually fear and greed-based decisions. Mm. A lot of it's because they have a champagne taste on a beer budget, right? So they want this, but they can't have it, and they need a return to keep their lifestyle Mm. going a certain way. So there's also people fall victim to the magic pill solution, right? I've seen a million infomercials on... The green light, red light stuff that's out there, we know when the market's going up and when it's going down. I've yet to see a software program that can do that, right? There's just really no way in the short term to predict where that market's going. But over the long run, like we talked about before, a 9.7% rate of return on the S&P is pretty strong.
1: Well, Buffett in a recent interview said, hey, the GDP in the USA is going up 2% a year, okay? That means that the average person in America 20 years from now has 19 more grand in their pocket and that gets spent four different times over. What does that mean? The economy is going to continue to grow. You know, the population is projected to be 440 million in the U.S. alone by 2065. You know, we're talking about real estate long-term hold. People are going to have to need somewhere to live. They're going to buy cars and food, and they're going to have jobs and this and the other. That's the thing is, if you're going to be an investor, you better believe in the future. You better believe in the future. You better believe. And you can do your homework and you can do your analysis to find that stuff out. Is it true that the mindset of a trader versus the mindset of an investor is really where the big mistakes are made?
2: Absolutely. The pluses and minuses of the ETFs are it's a double-edged sword because right now everyone has the ability to check their phones and make a trade and be liquid in five seconds, mm-hmm. right? And it's a long-term game like we just talked about. Right. So – that makes it difficult. That makes it really difficult.
1: Right. And the more technology and the more people have access. And, hey, for six bucks, I don't, you don't need a Ben Stewart. Right? You don't need a Ben Stewart. I have six bucks. I can do it myself. And then there's the ego factor of I'm going to outsmart the market. Most people who are trading are better off going to the track. At least with the track, you get the beauty of seeing a horse run. <laughs> right? At least with the track, there's a sense of excitement and you want to race. And with the track – there's only 15 horses or 12 horses in the race. Most people would be far better off going to a racetrack and gambling than doing the trading that they're trying to do and win. Because they only remember their winners. It, it's no different than you know going to Vegas. You, know, you remember all your wins in Vegas, and everybody comes home on a plane. Oh, yeah, I did this, and I got that, and I got this hand. But all I know is all those casinos are cranking 24 hours a day. Somebody's losing money. <laughs> You know, It's millions of dollars to run those things every day. Somebody's losing money when they go to Vegas, right? So I, I think that's the bottom line. It's be an investor and not a trader. And, it's
2: not entertainment. You, yeah. you don't want to be in, in the market for it to entertain you. Yeah, yeah. It should Let be like washing paint dry. What,
1: what's the greatest satisfaction that you get in your business?
2: Well, recently I think when you get someone from point A to point B, and I've been helping people with exit strategies, mm-hmm. and then when you see someone who's worked their whole life and put in the work and stayed true to the system and trusted what they were invested in and start reaping the rewards that's pretty good stuff yeah nice rewarding okay mr hopkins now you're you're a long-term real estate
1: holder yourself you're you're actively involved in the real estate business but lately you've seized upon an opportunity and you've done real well with this yeah Uh, let's talk about the vacation rental or short term rental of real estate. It's it's highly controversial. It's right. It's got a lot of different pluses and minuses and whereabouts. But just from your perspective, talk to us a little bit about what it is.
3: Well I think it's a unique opportunity in the market. It's no different than the massive flip market we had in 2011, 12 and thirteen. Sure. Right. You know, so it's kind of a the property that Kevin bought in Ocean Beach. You know, he rolled out of a, a flip at Escondido that right. So you, my brother
1: Kevin bought yep. a property, fixed it up Yes. Made a very good profit on it because he bought it right. Correct. So he bought it very low, fixed it up inexpensively, and then made a really good profit. Correct. And then he turned that into an ocean property that became a vacation rental.
3: Correct. So the goal when he bought that property, we rolled the equity out of uh, the Escondido house into that one that he was going to flip it. Right. So... You know, the margin wasn't very great to yeah. do it that way. So in the spring of 2015, when that was happening with Kevin, we were taking Taylor, my oldest daughter, up to do the college tour all over the West Coast and mm-hmm. Oregon and stuff. And we stayed in Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of them like that, but that was another option, which we, we did. And then we had Kevin's situation there. So when we came back, we were fixing up a studio I have at my house because my father and my mother divorced, but they were going to come down for Taylor's graduation. So we fixed up this studio that we had underneath our garage because one of them was going to sleep there. They couldn't both sleep in my house, <laughs> right? That, that caused a little issue. <laughs> so we had this space that Kelly was, that was a scrapbook room. Mm-hmm. We cleared everything out, put a bed in there. We extended the bed, fixed it up in anticipation that one of my parents were going to stay there, which one of them did not come down. Yeah. And so, when we were looking at the Ocean Beach house, we also looked at the studio and said, "Why don't we turn both of these into a short-term rental?" Right. Those were done simultaneous at the right. same time, and they both went on the market. And the studio went on in June because it was done, yeah. and Kevin was finishing up the OB house, and that went on in July. Right. And um, it's just kind of grown from there.
1: And what's been the experience, right?
3: Yeah, the Ocean Beach house. If you just average that out, we may have two to three days of vacancy in a month Uh, in a month yeah in january and february you know we probably had five or six yeah uh we would adjust the price so it's no different than the long-term rentals you know there's a lot there's definitely a business side of it even more hands-on than on the long-term you gotta clean
1: it and change sheets you have to have people to clean it yep but think about this let's say kevin's ocean beach house right what would that rent for
3: just long term? Yeah. Probably twenty five hundred? Great.
1: At full occupancy, middle of July, what would you get?
3: Seventy five hundred.
1: And that's kind of the rule of
3: thumb. Yeah. The short term rental, traditionally, a good one, and this is where you have to analyze it, and it's projecting a future sales price of a potential flip property, it's yeah. kind of the same way. You gotta find the butter zone on the rent, so if you have to make adjustments, what's that property going to gross? Um, And it's usually three times what the rental rate would be.
1: Great principle to have. And so that's the deal. So you think about it. Like, Think about how the world has changed. Right. Let's say Kevin buys the beach house 15 years ago. Right. And he decides to make it short-term rental. You're hanging a sign out in the yard. You're having people call who drive by. You might run ads. You might have a website.
3: Well, now you have a platform that's worldwide, it's global. Well, it, so it is now, but
1: 15, 20 years oh, yeah. ago, you had a short-term vacation rental. I mean, the chances of it being booked up was very low. Correct. Unless you had done it year after year after like year. Like Mission Beach or oh, Pacific Beach. Those ones, yeah, those because going for decades. Historically, people yeah. go, okay, I'm going there for vacation, and this is yeah. what I do. But people, these things prop up. So obviously, the technology comes along, Airbnb, Pillow, there's a bunch of these different services now. And so here you guys are, and you have... People coming. They're occupying the place. People are rated. They rate you guys. Yes. You get to rate a great them. As system. You rate them. They rate you. They rate you. So other owners can go, no, nah, this guy doesn't have a good rating. I'm not going to let that guy rent from me. Or people go, I'm going to look on you. You guys don't have a good rating for keeping the property clean and whatever else. And so Airbnb takes their piece. Correct. You guys get a much higher rent. And a property, in Kevin's case, that property would not have made much sense at a $2,500 a month rent no. based on what he paid, but at 7500 bucks a month, it made all kinds of sense yeah, as an that investment. Yeah,
3: that would be upside down on yeah. a traditional rental. Right. It'd be negative about $750 a month. Right. And it's hard in San Diego in more expensive areas. Sure. I mean, a break-even is kind of a win. Right. You <laughs> yeah. get a property that will just break <laughs> even and carry itself. It's like, okay, it's a yeah. good. You're not... Don't have the expectation you're going to really make cash right. off
1: of it. Different parts of the country will do different things. Right. Places that have appreciated in the past are you know more expensive and harder to break um, right. cash flow. Uh, places that haven't had high appreciation, you can get cash flow with low money down. Right. right. So, the bottom line with this is that the short term rental has changed the game in a large extent to the valuations of properties too now. Absolutely. And you were just telling me recently you were involved in a real estate purchase where. Instead of old-school gross rent multipliers that have been used for 50 years to assess the value of an income property, it was assessed based on its income potential as a vacation rental and worth about a half a million bucks more. Correct.
3: Yes. And the banks are recognized. I mean, it's a new world, basically. I mean, the Airbnb has brought a new tier of travelers. It's not taken away from the hotel, and this is what people think. They think, well, we're, we're taking those potential hotel-goers, right. and they're going to go into the Airbnb. It's allowing people that aren't traditionally traveling in that way to travel. Yeah. That benefits the community. Yeah, it's everybody. So There's more everybody travelers. Wins.
1: More people are, are, Absolutely. are taking trips. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of things. There is some heat right now because we have like in downtown San Francisco. And people renting out rooms and this and that and the other, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, working people are being pushed out of these right. cities and all that stuff. So there's, and you get those more extreme cases, and people are like, oh, the governments and the city governments are going to shut down this, and almost every community, especially in vacation areas, is meeting on this. But it seems to be at the end of the day, it's all going to be money. It's all going to be settled by they're going to maybe increase taxes.
3: I think they're going to regulate it. I feel in the next six to twelve months, I do think they're going to bring in some regulations as they should some of the beach areas that have been long-term rental areas here in san diego like mission beach and crown point and pacific beach the problems are concentrated there so you have to have responsible landlords no different than joe's talking about making sure there's a standard that the tenant can expect when they go in there and that his tenants aren't disturbing the other neighbors right that's just common courtesy right so what happens in the beach areas people go to vacation there and they just go crazy they literally go crazy and they don't have landlords that are are monitoring that and controlling it so it does affect the quality of life for the neighborhood right so So,
1: again standards
3: they're going to issue a permit yeah you know it's kind of a three strikes you're out if you are getting complaints and you have three they're going to revoke the permit Mm -hmm. is what i'm hearing that they're going to do and then you cannot put that on a short-term rental basis for a year oh wow and I think age. it's a good policy. Yeah, that's great.
1: I, if you're not going to be a responsible landlord, you shouldn't uh, reap the benefit of this yeah. opportunity. I do think there's probably going to be some tax changes over time and so on and so forth. But all I think that's going to do is maybe limit part of the rate of return. Right. The rate of return is still very significant.
3: Kevin's house in Ocean Beach, uh, 22% this year. Wow. That's a return for what's put down on that. That's amazing. And it's nice. And so Kevin and I have one coming up in Hillcrest, and we're about 10 days out on that. That, I project that one to be about 27% mm. when we have it up and going. It takes a while to get a little bit of traction in it. Sure. But that's a good return, buying a more expensive piece of property right. because we know we have the income coming off an Airbnb, and that's not traditional.
1: Nice, nice. It's all food for thought, and it's a wild world we're living in. Yeah. Mistakes people are making with this?
3: Probably not picking the right property. So, you know, there's going to be some areas that that type of property is not going to work. Right. So you're too far out from... What people are coming into town for, mm-hmm. not going to be a good one. Underestimating the amount of work it takes and having a system in place, just like a long-term rental to handle mm-hmm. the cleaning and the maintenance and the reservation system. So you
1: have a relationship with the, a company that comes in and does the work? and. Mm-hmm does the cleaning and change the sheets and do that stuff. That is a lot more work than even long-term hold. Yes. But it's also, you're looking at three times a return.
3: Three times a return. And some of the long-term holds, like I've got multi-units as well. By office building, we've repurposed some of those rentals into short-term so we can pay the notes down faster. Mm. The one at my office, I mean, we took a photographer's studio that was bringing in $850 a month and we put a shower in there, and now it's bringing in $4,000 a month. Jeez. So all that's going to pay down the note. You know, It gives us some a right. leverage. Right, downtown
1: location yeah. San Diego. It's a beautiful area yep. right in the heart of it.
3: Right. I have another one on Hawthorne, one in Normal Heights. Both those, we're turning each unit into a short-term rental, and then we're going to pull some cash out because now we can service the increase of the loan and buy something else.
1: Life is good. Life is good. Life is good. I'll tell you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get invited over for dinner because I have a feeling there's a 100 grand stashed in the carpet somewhere. (laughs) I want to find out. (laughs) Let's see what he's doing. Great stuff, guys. This has been a lot of fun, and we've just had a chat here today and talking about some things. Let's close on this. There's people all across the board who are listening. I, I hope people are encouraged. The four of us started out from scratch, and the four of us are sitting here today we're on location in La Costa at the suite that Oprah stays in. And, you know, life is good. And uh, we're still working, guys. We came by it honest. But uh, what would be your one encouragement of each one of you guys for anybody listening today who's trying to, you know, change the course of their financial future, change their family's financial future, get to the point where they can start getting off the treadmill and into the side where they can start? advancing their net worth and that opportunity. What would be your one piece of advice you'd have for somebody?
0: Well, my piece of advice would be is to know that no one will care for your money like you will yourself. Mm. So you can't abdicate the process. you got to really get committed to it, educate yourself, and stick to your plan. They say that Rome wasn't built in a day, but the city of Chicago was burnt down overnight. And uh, the people that kind of, whether it's the stock market or short-term rentals or long-term investment real estate, when someone is just wavering, not committed, don't have a plan, they usually get burnt down overnight financially. Mm
2: -hmm. That's good. I'll piggyback on what Joe just said, which is you see a lot of people that start And uh, Joe was talking about commitment. And what happens is if you're doing well, sometimes you start playing not to lose. Mm. You get too conservative with your investments or you bail out at the first sign of trouble. So you always want to be playing just to win the game. It's a long game. Stay in it. And there's bumps along the way. You just have to ride them out. Yeah. Well, you've certainly helped a lot of people with that. And you've had to talk people off a ledge
1: on more than one occasion. And just encourage them to stay the course, stay the course, stay the course, and not get too carried away when they're winning big. Exactly. You know, and okay, great. You you went up by 100 grand, don't buy the new Mercedes. The investment game shouldn't have any impact on your lifestyle, to be honest with you. That's right. You know, so that's very cool. Jay. Uh,
3: Invest in what you know. So uh, we're telling our young agents that are coming in, you know, do you believe in the product? You know, if you don't believe in it, it's gonna be a hard thing to counsel your clients to purchase and mm-hmm. purchase long-term. Mm-hmm. And it's been great, especially we've got some agents in their first, second, third year. Some have already bought two duplexes. You mm-hmm. know, we're telling them buy one in a year, kind of like what you did, Joe. And uh, it's exciting to see that growth, you know. When they have some skin in the game, and they can look their client in the eye and say, this is a good deal, do not pass this up. You know, This is what it could look like, this is what it's done for me. And you can give a personal example of it. You know, It's not a difficult thing for people to kind of wrap their head around. Well, so. I, I
1: love being in the spot of conviction. Back in the day, I would work real hard to find an investment property for my clients when I was yeah. selling real estate. And I would look them in the eye and i go, go, Here, here's the thing, I'm bringing this to you, I'm giving you the first bite of the apple, if you don't buy this, I will. Yep, I and I would always yeah. offer it to my clients first because I'd rather them prosper. I'm going to do fine. I'm going to get plenty of opportunities because I'm in the game. But I'd tell them. And the number of times I did that, and it would just freak them out. <laughs> yeah. It would just freak them out. Like, okay, if you don't buy this, I will. But I think there's a point of conviction. The bottom line is this. The future is bright. There are no rich pessimists. Investment means you've got to believe in the future. There's an awful lot to believe in the future about all the news and all the fake news and all the Twitter stuff and all the different networks, here's the dynamic. It's enough to scare a hungry dog off a meat truck. You know, the bottom line is you have to know the numbers. You have to read the analysis. you got to get some help. you got to have your brain trust, and you got to ultimately start small and bit by bit. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but bit by bit, we've all kind of – it's taken us years and years and years and years and years to get to this place. Right, it's not an
3: overnight thing. No, and you –
1: know. uh, But if you're willing to pay the price and do it long term, you can be a winner. You guys are all winners in my book. I personally want to thank you for all you've done for me and continue to do for me. I hope this has been super helpful for the folks listening today. We'll have some show notes and if people want to contact you, we'll create some opportunities for that if they want to reach out and say hi to you. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. As you know, we do this without sponsorship or advertising. Our goal is is to impact and improve the lives of people. And we hope if you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll share it with a friend. Maybe you know someone who's also trying to make good investment decisions, and maybe they'd enjoy this. And so as I leave you here today, I'll leave you in the uh, immortal words that my grandfather used to say when he'd leave the house. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. By the way, that was an investment strategy. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us.